healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Mike Schroeder from Roundstone Insurance. Mike, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Michael. So here's the game plan. What we seek to do here on this show is challenge the status quo and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their healthcare costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you'd like to help with? Absolutely. So to get us started, I'm going to read a brief bio about you so our audience has a little bit of context about who they're listening to, and then we'll get into it. So since 2005, Mike Schroeder has served as president of the Roundstone Organization. Roundstone develops, underwrites, and manages captive self-insurance solutions. Mike offers more than 25 years of insurance industry management expertise. Mike delivers a track record of building and leading fast-growing, innovative insurance businesses. Prior to joining Roundstone, Mike served as vice president and general counsel for an insurance company while it transitioned into a NASDAQ-listed AM Best A-rated insurer. Mike was also the founder of a medical malpractice underwriter and shepherded its rapid growth prior to an acquisition by a large specialty insurer. And Mike also held senior level executive positions with a public held workers' compensation insurer, a non-standard auto insurer, and served as an associate of a Cleveland law firm. Mike is a frequent speaker for trade associations, conferences, and is published as an insurance thought leader in magazines, journals, and newspapers throughout the country. Mike received his Juris Doctorate from the Ohio State University College of Law and received his Bachelor of Science in Business Management from Tulane University. Anything else you'd like to add, Mike? No, I'm looking forward to golf season coming up. <laughs> but no, that pretty much sums up my working, uh, my working life. And um, right. once in a while, I do get to play golf too. I like that. Well, I'm I'm a golfer, so I can I can appreciate that position. So, Mike, let's let's start with your background. You know, you started as an attorney, went to law school, and then you kind of ended up in in the insurance industry. So, give us a little background on on your career in in really property and casualty insurance, and how that led to a leadership role with a captive on the employee benefits side of the fence. Yeah, it's kind of a winding path. But when I first entered into the insurance world from the law firm, it was with a um, an insurer that grew by acquiring self-insured work comp pools or trusts as they would would be known by. Mm -hmm. And so right away I was introduced into the concepts of self-insurance. And then over time, as I kind of climbed that corporate ladder, if you will, and became general counsel at PNC Insure that primarily insured uh, trucks and charter buses, the way they competed is they would place these companies into group captives. So it was a, another form of self-insurance, and it was my first introduction into captive insurance. But uh, some of the concepts were the same. And so um, after doing that for a lot of years, kind of had the idea that why can't we take some of these same concepts of uh, that are in the P&C world when it comes to captive insurance and uh, pooling and group self-insurance and see if they can work in the, uh, the health insurance market. So back in uh, 2005, I joined Roundstone to do exactly that. And one of the first programs we, we started offering was uh, this stop-loss group captive. But 
that's kind of the winding path. And I've always really enjoyed the business side of insurance. I'm trained as an attorney and served as one for a lot of different insurance companies. I was one of those attorneys that really would like to get into the meeting rooms and learn the ins and outs of how you develop products and programs and and you know the really the business side of of insurance. So that's been the path. It's been a winding one. I've enjoyed it. I'm sad to say it's uh, been 25 years because it just makes me feel old. <laughs> oh no, 25 years spring chicken. You probably have like 25 more years to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So. Before we get into a little bit more about the Roundstone medical captive, let's start kind of at the macro level. You know, Warren Buffett recently compared the U.S. healthcare system to a hungry tapeworm on the American economy, which I think is a just comparison. As healthcare expenses continue to consume more and more of our disposable income, eating up money that really could be better spent elsewhere in the economy. So, so tell me in your words, what do you think is wrong with our current healthcare delivery and payment system? And, and why do, you, do costs continue to increase like they do? Wow, that's a big question. So there's a lot of things going on there. I guess first I'd like to say, you know, I do agree with uh, Warren Buffett and, and it's, it's particularly harsh for the little guy. So for the employees, they really suffer the brunt of these rising healthcare costs. You look at their wage increases and then you look at the increases of their healthcare obligations or healthcare cost share, it's upside down. I mean, they're going backwards where uh, twice the amount of their raises are going for healthcare cost share. And then you, you move up from the employees to the smaller and middle market employers and you know they're seeing the same double digit cost increases so it is a tapeworm and it is really hurting the the smaller and middle market even greater than say uh, you know warren buffett's berkshire hathaway you know the cause of it it's complex but there's some real basic issues or challenges that go on in healthcare that that make it so challenging and the, the first one is and um something i actually just was writing on is is the lack of cost transparency. You know, almost anything else that you go out and buy, you have a pretty good idea of what it's gonna cost. And you also have a pretty good idea of where the value or where the quality is on what you're buying. Healthcare is is not like that. It's very hard for us to know what something's gonna cost. A lot of us never really think about it. You go to the doctor, you go to who the doctor refers you to, and you never think to ask, hey, how by, how, by the way, how much is this knee surgery gonna cost me? Mm-hmm. And am I going to the right person? You know, is the quality gonna follow that price? And, and so because of those kind of blind purchases, it has caused a, a price escalation that you wouldn't typically see if the consumer was out there aware of quality, was aware of cost. And I'm not just talking about price. Now, I'm not talking just about the, the, what they call, like, say, the, the charge master, but the actual true cost to that consumer and the true cost to the, whoever the payer or the employer. So that, to me, if there's one thing I could change in the whole system that I think is really driving so much of this cost escalation, it would be, let's bring open, real-time, transparent cost information coupled with quality so that all the buyers out there could start making really good value purchases just like we do for everything else. I agree. And what's interesting, I don't know if you've noticed, there are a number of governmental agencies, particularly large states, that are now frustrated with the lack of transparency and they're abandoning their network models and moving to a Medicare Plus 
reimbursement model. And specifically, it's the state of Montana who recently did it. Uh, the state of North Carolina is looking to do it, and so is the state of Oregon. Right, and I think North Carolina was in there, and um, you know, we we support those strategies. We actually kind of wish or hope we could even take it one step better. And then instead of using, you know, Medicare or something that's kind of like forced or disputed with these providers, let's just make it more agreeable and more published. But if Medicare is the way to do that, if that reference to that Medicare price is the way to create that price or cost knowledge, then we're all for it. We just wish it could be a little bit more collaborative and a little bit more uh, agreeable with the providers. But yeah, we, those are, those are great. Hey, and then you mix in that with some of the quality and we're, we're seeing tools and strategies now that where a consumer of healthcare can say, Hey, this, this doctor or this provider, you know, they, they do 250 knee surgeries a year. They know what they're doing Mm -hmm. and not surprisingly, they also have the most effective cost and the most efficient cost and the best outcomes for this procedure. And, and when you put all that together, that's when you're going to start seeing the double-digit cost increases stop. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'm glad you mentioned quality because really, I don't, I don't think it's just about price. It's, it is the, the, the quality component. And anecdotally, I have a quality example here. You had one client recently who had a member who had a routine surgery and you know, some of her intestines were, were actually put back together incorrectly, which has led to three, four or five times the cost. And this person, you know, this member almost died. So cost without quality is, is not, uh, <laughs> it's not always a good thing. I was just going to say one of the greatest things about healthcare. And I said, one of the best things that's happened in this healthcare is that quality usually begets cost efficiency. So unlike some things where if you chase the highest quality, you end up paying the most healthcare is if you chase quality, you end up paying a more efficient cost. So that's a really good development for healthcare. Um, it's probably one of the big misconceptions people have is that if you, that somehow if you're out here advertising more value and more cost efficiency that we're doing so by depriving people of quality or we're doing so by depriving people of choice. And, and that's a terrible misconception is quite frankly, the opposite. A lot of that has to do with the marketing. You know, hospitals are, are now pretty heavy into the marketing business and uh, it's, it's more about uh, the marketing and you'll never really hear them talk about quality. But again, that's, that's a sidebar. Let's get into your company here, Roundstone. So you guys are a, a medical captive. And before we dive into, into the details about, you know, Roundstone, I'd really like to spend a little bit of time on the basics because I imagine there are people in my audience here who aren't familiar with that term captives. Can we start with the basics of what is a captive and how does it differ from a commercial insurance company? Well, a captive is an insurance company fundamentally. And where it's different than what Main Street insures is the captive's ownership or beneficial interest in its underwriting outcomes are um, controlled and owned by its members or its, its insureds. So in the traditional market where if there's an underwriting profit or there's excess premiums and interest over claims, the, the owner of that insurance company which more often than not is a large publicly traded insurance company, mm-hmm. keeps those underwriting outcomes. And with a captive, it's whoever is the participant or the owner or beneficial owner of that captive. And it can be one employer in some captive structures or many employers in ours, like ours is a, a group medical captive. So, But the biggest difference is, is 
the underwriting outcomes of that insurance company belong to the insureds who are the owners of the captive. And so the, the insureds are the owners of the captive, but they're also sharing risk, aren't they? Right. So just like any insurance company, uh, as the owners, their premiums fund the insurance company along with a small amount of collateral or capital. And uh, the claims are applied to that insurance company and there's an accounting done each year. And if there's more premiums than there are claims, then the, the insureds and the owners get some money back. If there's more claims and there are premiums, then it hits into the capital. And then there's also reinsurance or catastrophic coverage above that. But yeah, they all share in each other's claims. They do so in relation to how much their premium is of the overall pool. Mm -hmm. But it's a spreading of risk. It's kind of like a private insurance company or a private pool, if you will. I like that. I like that comparison. So how common are captives in the U.S. marketplace? I mean, are they, you know, something that, you know, a small percentage of employers are, are, are taking advantage of them or, or are they more common than we think? Well, they're certainly very, very common. They're the primary source of funding for the Fortune 500. Almost every Fortune 500 company has a captive insurance company. Uh, they primarily, about half of the commercial P&C insurance premium in the country is in some form of a captive insurance company. Wow. So it's, it's pretty prevalent. Now, in the last five years, you've seen a real growth on the health and benefits side of, of captive insurance, and it's, it's growing significantly, and particularly in the middle market. It's turned out to be a great funding mechanism uh, for the middle market. But I would tell you that captive insurance still dominates in the PNC market and is growing rapidly in the health market. So it, it's almost becoming, uh, you know, mainstream now. It's not, there's very few business owners today that if you mention the word captive insurance, that they've never heard of it. Which five years ago would have been different. Different, absolutely. Certainly on the health and welfare side of things, yes. So let's talk about your, your specific captive here, the Roundstone Medical Captive. So, so how does it work and what specific problem are you attempting to solve in the marketplace with the captive? So what we try to do is help the middle market and middle market is employers with anywhere from say 30 employees to a thousand employees. And they are experiencing the most dramatic cost increases in their health care today. And what we try to do is say, hey, who's having some success at managing health costs, health care costs and health insurance? And the Fortune 500, you know, the Warren Buffetts of the world, while they don't have it where they want it, they are having more success in the middle market. The middle market seeing double-digit cost increases, and the Fortune 5 is seeing more inflation-level cost increases. Yep. So what we say is, like, we're going to help you buy your health insurance like a Fortune 500. And there's several ways we do that and several things we deliver to make that happen. But one of the key pieces of that is the Fortune 500, 98% of them, 99% of them, are self-funded. They, they self-insure their health benefits. Now, the middle market's never done that because they viewed it as being too volatile or too risky for self-funding if you have 100, 200 employees. And what the captive is, is it's a funding strategy that is built on a self-funded model that because of that sharing of risk and that spreading of risk across a private pool, it reduces that volatility. So we are able to deliver a Fortune 500 funding mechanism, self-insurance, to the middle mm -hmm. market because of the captive's funding. We're also able to deliver the control and the information 
and the cost savings that that Fortune 500 employer is enjoying down to the middle market. And the, the middle market's no longer forced to forfeit information because it's not shared in the traditional insurance market, their data on their claims and where they're coming from. And they're also able to get also some of the control that allows them to deliver the cost containment. So this captive idea and the ability to reduce volatility kind of opens up a toolbox for these middle market companies to really go out and behave and manage their costs just like a Fortune 5. But that's how the captive fits into it. It's the funding mechanism that makes it all work. Got it. So really, it's it's the ability to bring self-funding to the middle market who otherwise may not necessarily have access to it in the same way. You got it. Yeah, that's the key differentiator. And it does so by that pooling or that sharing of risk. So specifically with the, the captive, it is a stop loss captive, correct? Yeah. And what that means, as I said, it's a, you know, the, the funding, it sits on a traditional self-funded model where you, have, you buy stop loss for both per claim or specific coverage and also aggregate accumulation of claims. So that traditional stop loss, self-funded spec and ag model, mm-hmm. what the captive is doing is it's taking those exposures, both individual claims and accumulation of claims, and it's reinsuring those into the captive. So the captive is is insuring stop loss coverage. It's not issuing coverage directly to the employees mm-hmm. as a fully insured or traditional and it's it's not issuing you know any kind of uh, coverage directly to the employer it's reinsuring the stop loss insurer so yes it's stop loss is the coverage that's being placed in the captive got it and you know for you know i'm just going to use a specific example and you'd say you have an employer who has you know 150 lives and let's say that the specific deductible for a large claim is is 35,000 and you know then there'd be aggregate insurance for 125% over expected claims. That fits the model, right? Yeah, that's a traditional spec and ag structure. And that coverage that you just described would be seeded, as they say, or reinsured to the captive up to a certain limit. And then premiums would be sent to the captives reflecting that exposure or that risk that the captive is assuming. And if monies are left over, then it goes back to those insureds where the policies were issued to. In one of your proposals, there's a great visual, and it, it talks about risk-taking, risk-sharing, and risk-shifting, which I think is a really great way to visualize the structure. Do you want to just comment on that notion of risk-taking, risk-sharing, and then risk-shifting? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. It's like a lot of things in life. It's it's never the the answer or the solution. In this case, we're talking about the the best funding strategy for the middle market. Mm-hmm. The answer never really lies in one thing. You know, it's never just, oh, well, just shift all your claims to the insurance company and don't worry about it anymore. Then that's the answer. Or, you know what, just assume all the risk yourself. And that's the, that's the answer. And, or, hey, you know what, let me try to share risk with a close community of people of like-minded cost containment employers and and so we're just going to take all of our risk and share it with everybody else. Those are all three different strategies that are in the market. And unfortunately, employers are kind of forced to kind of pick one and only one, except when it comes to the stop loss captive, where what we have said is, quite frankly, a little bit of each of these strategies is, is correct. You do want, as an employer, to have some independence and some standalone responsibility of risk. So when you do things right, you are rewarded 100%. And that's the risk taking. 
And that's the first layer of claims. And it's the claims that you probably have the most influence over. And that's a good thing. But you don't want to do that for all of your risk. And you don't want to do that exclusively. You actually do want to share at another layer of risk. And that's the risk sharing layer, the captive layer with some other like-minded employers that are applying some of the same cost containment strategies you are. So you still get some of your upside of your cost containment at that higher layer of risk, but you're doing some sharing so you're not on your own and it's not quite as volatile for you. And then lastly, there are unexpected or catastrophic claims that candidly you don't have a tremendous amount of control over And you are best advised to shift those off to a big insurance company. And that's the reinsurance layer above the captive, both aggregates. And so our strategy or our idea is, hey, let's take all three of these funding ideas, risk taking, risk sharing, and risk transfer, and let's put them all together and layer them on top of each other for the appropriate layer. And we think if we do that, we'll have a funding strategy that works best for the employer. And it's proven to be pretty good and especially strong for the middle market. I want to just give a couple of examples of what it means to win in those three scenarios. So in the risk taking, that's everything, you know, the employer's taking risk, everything below the specific deductible. And so portion of what they're funding for is going to be in that area. And so if claims are less than expected, well, they spend less, right? They win where if it was fully insured, I mean, that full dollar premium is gone. This is an instance where if utilization is less than expected, they could win. In the area of risk sharing, which is the risk that the captive takes, if the experience in the captive pool performs well, then there is an opportunity for that employer in the captive to get some money back from that. Is that correct? That's correct. And these things don't always work for an employer you know, they don't always work at the same time. So for instance, uh, you know, this employer could be doing, having a really difficult time and it's risk taking, it's experiencing a year where there's a lot of utilization and it's not saving a lot of money in it's employer deductible layer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, the captive as a whole and is doing very well. The other employers are doing well. And this employer participating in this captive could very and likely end up seeing some money back out of that captive. And so that was a a great year and a great outcome for being part of the captive because on a difficult year with high utilization, they're now seeing a dividend coming back to them and that's lowering their overall cost for them. And so that's the, the smoothing effect of the captive and the reduction of volatility effect of the captive is really serving its goal there. I'd like to stress that. I think you pointed out is, just because you have a great year in your employer deductible, you might have a middling year in your captive layer. They don't always lock step with each other. But well, that's a good thing because that's where the, the volatility management, that's where that comes in. Right. And I guess the, the third area I'd like to point out where you can win with the risk transfer or the risk shifting, right? Where a portion of that stop loss premium is being anything over a certain level. And I think it's about 500,000 is, is transferred to a reinsurer. I mean, if you have a hemophiliac or you have a preemie baby who's, you know, in the NICU for five, six weeks, okay, those are million dollar claims, right? And if your specific deductible was $35,000, well, via the risk transfer mechanism, to me, that would be a win as well. <laughs> would it not? That excess reinsurance there, you win a couple ways there. One is what you're talking about is, 
hey, listen, that, that cost for a large pool of, uh, of members or employees is less than 10%, above half a million dollars. It's less than 10% of your healthcare spend. And so to be able to shift that kind of large exposure of a hemophiliac for less than 10% of your overall costs, that's a heck of a bargain. You can't fund that yourself. But the other way it also works is that spreading of risk is when you do have that catastrophic claim, and we've had employers that have had two and two and a half million dollar claims and actually got a rate reduction at renewal. And you say, well, how can that be? If you have that level of, of they're self-funded, a two and a half million dollar claim, they, they should be getting a significant price increase at renewal. Well, the fact is, is the, the vast majority of that claim was spread across the captive layer and then shifted or transferred to the reinsurer. So the actual costs that are brought to bear on this employer are, are just a small portion of that two and a half million dollar claim. And they've actually seen a rate. You know, we, we've had the, a case that had truly did have a two and a half million dollar double transplant claim. They got a rate reduction at renewal. You know, whenever I think of being self-insured, I think of efficiencies, right? And so the stop-loss captive is, for all intents and purposes, a, a self-insured, you know, stop-loss insurer up to the level of, of risk that you take. And so would the traditional target loss ratio for a commercial stop-loss insurer be different from the target loss ratio of the captive? Oh, definitely. I mean, it's your insurance company. So you established the profit objectives of that company. Our captive or our insurance company owners are not doing this to create a high amount of profit in the insurance business. That's not, they're doing it to efficiently fund their health benefits. And so our objective is to price their stop loss as close to actual cost as we can without going over and hitting into collateral. So we don't put a significant or even any for a lot of our captives profit load into the captive layer. Whereas if you buy traditional stop loss, that's a for-profit enterprise that's trying to generate a profit on their capital investment. And there's no doubt that they have profit loads in what they charge. So uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to see a little better pricing up front, but you're also going to see a little better pricing at renewal time. And that's probably the more significant value because instead of us just looking at that one employer, we're spreading it across the entire pool and our renewals will tend to be a little more attractive, but the profit piece is part of it, no doubt. So let's talk about that because I, I think what I'm trying to get at is there are efficiencies to be achieved in this mechanism that you're just not going to get purchasing stop loss on a direct basis. So with stop loss, we always hear about leverage trend, right? And, and generally the average stop loss renewal is going to be, you know, significantly higher than medical trend alone. And so, I mean, I would say it's, it's on average, I mean, I'm just going to throw it out there, you know, at least 50, at least 15%, right? So what would you say, Roundstone's average renewals are relative to traditional commercial stop loss. If you're talking about a mature contract at that level of 15%, we're going to be dramatically better than that. We're going to be less than one third of that. If on an immature contract, which means going from a 12 months of coverage to something longer like 24 months, then we're still going to be less, but it maybe isn't as dramatic as say one third. It might be something closer to 50 or 60% of the traditional market. 
and and that is influenced by what we just talked about the profit objective it's but mm-hmm. it's as much influenced by the fact the captive is is pooling a lot of those risks and and they're not being placed entirely on that one employer when we're coming up with the stop loss rate there's a smoothing or a spreading taking place that that's reducing those renewal rates when you come in you know when you're in a captive so it's anywhere from a third to half i'd say of traditional stop loss market renewal rates when the pool performs well you know we've talked about how the the employer can get some money back kind of like a dividend how are you guys reporting on the performance of the captive and and you know is there i mean do you track what the annual you know average annual dividend is as a percentage of of the premium they're paying Right. Absolutely. Every quarter you get a, um, not only claim reporting, but you get captive reporting that shows the earned premiums and the investment income and also the claim experience. And that continues through the entire underwriting year. And then um, it's closed up in the last, uh, the next six months uh, after the underwriting year. And we're again, reporting every, every quarter. The final accounting is done in that, that last six month period. And, and distributions are, are returned. On average, across the captives, the distributions are a little more than 6%, they're 6.5%. You know, they, they basically run in that kind of window of between 6 and 10%. And that's really important because what we try to do, and this, this kind of gets back to buy like a Fortune 500, is we really want to change the focus from a 12-month what is the rate upfront consideration? You know, the Fortune Five, when they look at their healthcare spend, they look at it over a longer term perspective, sure. over five years, and they and they don't look at just rates. They don't just say, "Hey, well, what was the stop loss?" Because keep in mind, you're you're getting back some of your captive premium if it's if the pool doesn't spend it. Let's look at what the actual costs are which includes the employer deductible. It includes the captive distribution. Mm -hmm. It does include some fixed costs for the risk transfer to the reinsurance market. Sure. But if we can look over five years at actual costs, then you start behaving like a fortune 500 and then you start comparing yourself and say, Hey, is my per employee per year costs going up at the rate of inflation, which is what I'm trying to do. Or do I still have some work to do on cost containment because it's going up double digit and I don't want that. But we work hard on that long-term vision, and we look hard at looking at cost, not just simply projected cost, because we are a variable cost funding model. And if you consider that, especially in the middle market, you know, if you think about the employers that are going to be under 500, the stop loss can be a significant chunk of the overall funding. And so 6% back on a large portion of, of the funding is nothing to, to, to sneeze at. Yeah, it, you know, the, if you want to look at percentages for the middle market, 60% of the spend usually is falling in their employer deductible. That's the risk taking and anything they don't spend of that 60%, they keep all to themselves, regardless of how people in the captive are doing. That's all on their own. The captive layer usually works out to be about 25, 30% of the overall spend. And again, they can get some of that back. You know, 6% would be almost a Oh, I don't know, about 20% of that, of that stop loss layer. And right. then, and then again, you have your fixed costs and the fixed costs do run around 15%, you know, so, uh, you know, that's how it breaks down. And the whole objective is make as much variable, throw as much cost containment at it as you can, and then look at your actual costs and try to keep that below inflation and do so over the long term, over a five-year horizon, not just figuring it out, you know, it's kind of like going to the 
to the casino every 12 months and hoping you can beat the traditional. <laughs> I'm going to beat the traditional health insurer this year. That is one strategy. We think it's not the best route. We like that long-term management a little better. And I like the fact that you said five-year horizon because that's oftentimes the the comparison that we use. I mean, we, we look at how some of our self-insured groups perform relative to those that you know have decided to maintain full and, and be fully insured. And over a five-year period, it doesn't matter who, who it is. The self-insured groups always perform better. Always. Yeah. Haven't, haven't seen a case to date where, where they did not. Yeah. You just, we just got to get that message out. And, you know, Michael, that's, that's the tough part for both of us is, um, you know, I would say, I was just reflecting on this the other day is, you know, the percentage of employers in the middle market that actually know what their per employee per year costs are. I think it's much less than half really do know that. And if there's one statistic I could tell a business manager to look at, it's that per employee per year cost and what has it done over the last four years? Mm -hmm. Because if you can manage that well, that's going to really drive really good results for your business. And, and, And we're trying like heck at Roundstone to get that message out there. Well, and it sounds like you guys are doing a pretty good job, though, of, of getting the message out there because you've had some significant growth. So can we talk about how many employees or employers do you have in the stop loss captive today? And give us a, a glimpse of, you know, what are the types of employers that are that are joining the, the, uh, the captive? We have uh, a little more than 500 employers in stop loss captives with us today. We add Right around, um, well, it's been growing. And this year, it'll probably be about 125 new employers will join us. And, and that's been growing on us by about 20 to 30% a year. The type of employers, so it's pretty significant growth. But on the yeah. other hand, it's frustrating in that we have data out there from the federal government that there's almost 400,000 businesses that fall into that 20 to 1,000 employee category. There's a lot of them. So when you think about that, that we don't even have 1% of the market, then I I sort of get worried they may get rid of me (laughs) because we need to do a little better job than just 1% of the market. But um, the type of employers, you know, it's across all SIC codes. It's everything from accounting firms to manufacturers to schools, you name it, we've seen it. It really boils down, you know, like I said, the size is, is the first consideration. 30 employees to 1,000. And we're also seeing a pretty big uptick in the size lately because a lot of these larger employers really like the bundling of the cost containment strategies we have. And they're starting to mm-hmm. take a look at what we're offering. You know, it, it really comes down to the to the personality of the of the business manager and and whether they really they like the control that the captive is offering to them they like the information they're able to get and they're able to take a long-term view and and if those three things resonate with the business manager it really doesn't matter if the person's running a an accounting firm or he's running a manufacturing or he's running a school district or she's running a uh some other company, those are the characteristics or qualities that we're really looking for, which is control, information, and long-term cost-saving strategy. Being that you guys are really providing the the stop loss, you know, for an employer who wants to sell fund, you know, I, I imagine you don't have any limitations as far as, you know, the TPA or the PBM that an employer wants to select, do you? 
No, we we are flexible. We're what would they call us, I guess, an open platform. That being said, you know, we do offer insight into what we feel are um, stronger strategies when it comes to a TPA. And, you know, if you go on to our Roundstone University, which is a learning portal, we'll, we have a whole class on how do you select an effective TPA. So we do have opinions on what works, yeah. but, but we don't mandate a certain TPA and the same goes for PBM. I mean, we have we, we have a class on PBM selection on what makes an effective PBM. You know, both of those uh, partners in this solution have a significant impact in two areas: one on costs, sure. so they can control the healthcare spend, but they also have a very big impact on employee experience, and that's a big part of this. This whole long-term cost-saving strategy is not done at the expense of the employee; rather. It's done in, in support of the employee and with the employee's engagement and, and reward by moderating those cost increases. So we really spend a lot of time, if folks start talking about PBMs and TPAs, bringing up that you got to make sure we take really good care of these employees with whoever you choose. You just mentioned the Roundstone Learning Academy or, or University. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, we decided a little while back that we wanted to make available. So for new folks, uh, un, you know, unlike you, Michael, not every advisor out there has, has got uh, a lot of experience in this area. And so maybe they want to catch up on, on, on what a PBM is and how you select the PBM and which ones work and which ones don't. So we created Roundstone University. It's a free learning management system. You just go on and give them your name and we give you a password. You have a choice. If you want to read about the subject, there's, you know, white papers and other materials, presentations. If you want to just sit and listen, there's videos, audio uh, to listen, but it's on subjects that touch on all the things that you and I have been talking about today, from TPAs to captives to self-funding, employee engagement, PBMs, whole host of different strategies and, and important information that if you want to pursue this, and you want to get a deeper dive into the, the, the nitty-gritty details, uh, you can do that. And we, I really encourage folks to take a look. It's just roundstoneuniversity.com or .org, I think it is, and it's available out there free of charge, no, no cost. There are some states like California where they've created regulations that prohibit individual stop-loss deductibles. I believe it's in California, it's lower than 40000 which can make it hard for smaller employers to self-fund. What's your take on these types of regulations, and, and do you think they really serve the best interests of employers? Well, no, they don't. So the captive is a self, it's built on a self-funded chassis, an ERISA-based plan where the employer is the plan sponsor. That's a federal law that preempts most of the state regulation of uh, health insurance. What's happened is uh, the states that have gone out and formed their own fully insured pools or exchanges got very nervous that the employers that were going to be proactive and really try to manage their, their risk and their health care of their employees would leave the state fund, the state pool that's being funded by the state and, and, mm -hmm. and exit into something like the Roundstone captive. So to kind of limit that, they passed some laws in you know, California, New York, there's a few of them out there that really restrict these, it's mostly focused on size. Uh, for instance, New York's over a hundred employees and then California, 
uh, it really starts hitting folks when you get below 50. I, I don't support it. You know, I'm a believer that private market frequently does come up with innovation and strategies that that help uh, the business uh, marketplace. This is one of them, in my opinion. And so to limit choice from a, an employer to better manage a cost like healthcare, which is a top three expense, it limit their choice and force them into a public market. I, I just don't think that's the best thing for uh, competition, innovation, and, and an economy and the growth of jobs and everything else. So I, I don't support it. I understand why they did it. It's a self-interest, but uh, I don't think it's the right way to go. It's interesting how these uh, types of regulations are, are portrayed or, or written about as it's, it's a protection. If anything, it's you know an, an obstacle. We haven't talked about fees. I mean, what is the fee structure to join the captive? Is the fee for Roundstone, is that built into the premium? Is it a PEPM? Any other fees that, that someone yeah. would need to pay to join? Our fees are built into the stop-loss premium. It's actually built into that reinsurance expense, that excess reinsurance expense. That's who pays us. It's a, it's a percentage of that premium. Our proposals are turnkey. They're all inclusive. So you'll have fixed costs for for consulting fees and TPA and network, and you'll have the stop loss premium, and, and that's it. And then you'll have one other piece, which is collateral. That's your, that's your kind of, if you're gonna participate in an insurance company, there's a premium component, and then there's also a capital or collateral. That works out to be about two to 3% of the healthcare spend for an employer. So it's fairly de minimis, but those, th- those three elements of cost covers everything and it's all put into the proposal so folks know what their total cost can be. Before, when I was talking about that excess reinsurance cost being less than 10% of the overall spend, we get a small share of that less than 10%. As an underwriter on behalf of those excess reinsurers, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how we get paid. Got it. So a lot of folks will say, well, why join a captive? It's just added cost. And, and that's not accurate. Um, you're going to be paying stop-loss premium uh, if you're in a self-funded model. And uh, all stop-loss premium pays for an underwriter, and that's what we Of course. Do. Of course. Yeah, so there's, 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 no, there's, no, there's no added cost just because you're in a captive. All, all no. you're doing, all you're doing I, I, you know, I sometimes scratch my head because we'll get folks call up and say, well, I, I want a stop-loss quote from you all, but I don't want it to be a captive. And I'll be like, You've why called the wrong you number. Your, yeah. Why would you not want to take your fixed cost of stop loss premium and make it two thirds variable? I, I don't understand. Like just, just, you might as well, you know what I mean? Right. You have a possibility of getting it back. Why wouldn't you take that? Yeah. So, but yeah, that's how we get paid. And that makes sense. That makes sense. So when an employer joins, is there a multi-year kind of term of membership or is it on an annual basis? What are the, I guess, exit provisions, if you will? Yeah, when we built this, we we knew we would be competing against the traditional market. So we built it without a lot of uh, strings attached. And and you can really, we don't believe you should, but if you want to look at this like, hey, I just want to check it out and see how it goes, you can do that. You're not obligated for more than the underwriting year you pay your stop loss premium for. And you can exit and, you know, you can, even when you exit, you do not forfeit your your right to the underwriting distribution. You do not forfeit the collateral you put on deposit. You get that back. It's just, uh, again, we did that because we didn't want to create excuses for folks that were fully insured or with the traditional insurance market to say, hey, we're gonna, we don't want to have barriers to entry. We really want it because once they get a taste of this, once they get the information, once they get the control, once they look at what the costs actually are, 
they don't go back. They, I mean, absent something catastrophic happening with their population, folks realize, wow, this is a much better way to manage my health care. We wanted to make it as easy as possible to get in, and uh, there's, there's really no barriers to entry or exit. Awesome. Awesome. You know, is there anything that you're really excited about now in the business? Any, any improvements or enhancements to the product that you'd like to tell the audience about? We have an annual captive forum where we, all of the current customers and a lot of prospects will come and it's a day and a half seminar of cost containment strategies. Mm-hmm. It's coming up May 8th and 9th of this year. It's in Cleveland. And during that a few years ago, we kind of realized that a lot of the employers were not taking full advantage of the control they have to implement cost containment ideas. And the biggest reason was they just weren't aware of what was going on at their company from a a data or claim perspective. And they weren't aware and they didn't have the resources to vet appropriate cost containment strategies. So what we've done is we've created this team, we call them our CSI team, and we've armed them with some data analytics support. CSI stands for cost savings investigators. (laughs) And so for every customer, they're in our data system. And if there's a certain type of claim that comes up that is responsive to a cost containment strategy, for instance, dialysis, maybe there's a carve out strategy that can help manage that cost. A CSI report will be kicked out to that employer. We also do it annually regardless. They get a CSI report that just generally looks at their data and makes Mm -hmm. them general recommendations, even if there's not a particular claim that hits the radar. And then the CSI dashboard, the data page for each of those employers is also available for that employer to look at any time they want to just get some general knowledge, that PEPY stuff I talk about. This CSI team has really been great for two reasons. It's saving folks a lot of money. I mean, there's there's like kind of success story and case study, you know, of real dollars that they're able to save. But I think it's also, uh, and the thing I like, is really inspired the employers to, to be proactive and not just a wing and a prayer that things turn out this, this year well. Because that's not what we want them to do. We want them to get engaged yeah. with what's happening. And, and you know, consultants like, like you, Michael, have the ability to bring them some really nice strategies for a whole lot of tough times. And you've got a variable cost funding model. You might as well take advantage of it. Oh, and so absolutely. We just want to arm folks. We want to arm folks like you with the, with the information, the data, and the, and the vetting and the resources of this. Because there's a whole bunch you know better than I do. There's probably... Ton. How many different concierge services and how many different PBM? Yep. It's it's overwhelming to try to figure out which one is really doing a good job. So we we try to vet a lot of them, and we don't take compensation from anybody. So we're agnostic, as I say. I don't have a, a dog in this hunt, but I I do look and say, hey, this this concierge service seems to be doing a pretty good job of achieving their objective. So I'm really excited about our CSI team. I'm excited about the engagement it's creating and. And for the right consultant, I think it's going to create some real, you know, strong bond with our organization as well. Very cool. Good, good to hear about that, that service. So we're, we're coming close to the end of our interview here. Mike, if there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? How successful are you at uh, achieving your objective of keeping folks cost uh, near inflation? There you go. And at the end yep. of the day, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? I mean, that's right. It's nice to talk about it. And it's nice to have all these bells and whistles, but can you really, really manage these healthcare costs down to an inflation level? And I ask myself that question. You know, I've been in this insurance business a long time, and the last thing I want to do is be out there selling something that's smoke and mirrors. So 
I look at case study after case study, and probably my favorite story in this area is a Midwestern manufacturer who essentially told me, if I don't fix this, if this doubles again on me, I'm out of business. It's just, I can't, this will wipe out my profits. There's no reason for me to do this. He was a small employer with 65 employees. You know, he's been a customer of ours now for five years and he's paying the same amount of money he was paying five years ago. So that's, uh, that's incredible. That's the question I would ask. And I, and I'm happy to say is if there comes a day where I can't say that this is working for our customers then uh, then I'll go do something else. Maybe I'll start golfing more. <laughs> well, I love that story. And so based on that, I, I would say, uh, keep working and, and, uh, you know, limit your golf, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. Appreciate it. Hey, and I really do appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. And anytime you want to talk, Michael, I'm, uh, I'm available to you. Very good. Very good. Well, how can people who are listening to this and they, they want to learn more, where can they go to learn more about Roundstone? Our website, roundstoneinsurance.com. There's lots of ways to contact us. You can sign up for our newsletters. You can get a webinar from one of our regional practice leaders. You can sign up for Roundstone University. There's, you can give me a call. I'm on there. Um, just, uh, there's, there's probably 10 or 20 different ways to, to start hearing from us if you just go to that roundstoneinsurance.com. Well, on behalf of our listeners and, and myself, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your day to join us. Um, I think it's been a great conversation and, and certainly insightful. So, so thanks for being on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Roundstone's website and contact information. Lastly, be sure to check out some of the free resources on our website, including links to recent articles and books, as well as our Health Plan Innovator Scorecard, where you can benchmark your health plan against a plan that is truly designed to lower healthcare costs and improve value for your employees. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.